Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast and a guest with a difference today, which is always great to get guests from different fields. I've had comedians on in the past, uh, as well as uh, politicians and advisors. But today's really is different. Greg Hurwitz, many of you will know, is a best-selling author. You cannot go through a bookshop without seeing his books in there. I just read his latest one, Into the Fire on Holiday, and it's absolutely superb. Uh, particularly as someone who usually just reads political biographies and books about political theory, to read a proper blockbuster book is a real treat. Um, And he's in Britain um, talking about his book. But what's fascinating about Greg is, as well as being uh, a best-selling author, and he doesn't just do books. He writes for Marvel and DC. He's done Batman, Wolverine, an incredible individual. He also helps out the Democrat Party, particularly in states that Republicans hold. So this is just, this is a guy who is understands stories, understands stories, how to tell a story, but also understands on a psychological level why people behave in particular ways, how to appeal to people from the opposite side of the spectrum and including the opposite side of the spectrum within your own party and within your own tribe. So this is just... There are times as well when you meet someone you like, the amount of stuff they know is so intimidating. <laughs> it's just fantastic. So it's just a complete, it's a different type of political discussion. And it's something that I always have to remind myself, politics isn't just about, oh, how do we solve intergenerational unfairness? And how does the Labour Party repair itself and left and right in our relationship with the state? It's about values. It's about psychology. And these all these different, with Deborah Matterson last week, you know, when you get that insight into what the public are thinking through someone who's so tuned in. With Greg, this is about the psychology of politics. This is about politics at an individual level and where our empathy is. It's just fantastic. He's such an impressive bloke. Um, so this is, a, this is a different type of conversation, I think it's fair to say, to, to many of the conversations I've had here. Um, rooted in American politics, but with parallels uh, that we have here. Um, so this is just this was just a real thrill. So do enjoy it. I began by asking Greg what made him a Democrat. So here's the thing that's really interesting. I've been doing a ton of work in politics, and I'm actually not much interested in politics. I'm interested in psychology, and I'm interested in the decisions that drive the, the mechanisms that drive decision making. And so part of it is I've been a Democrat. Um, part of it is I'm not a fan of President Trump or this administration. Um, and I think that I have and we can get into this a little bit about how how I work with and around polarization. Um, I, I, I tend to be high in trait empathy and trait openness. A lot of artists are or creative types are. It's why we have all the good artists. Right. We have we have Bruce Springsteen. They have Scott Bale. Right. There's a there's a there's a misbalance. And so the empathy side of my personality means that I tend to have concern and I'm drawn to people who are left out of the dominance hierarchy, who are having a hard time. But what most Democrats do is they make a mistake and believe that trait empathy is somehow morally superior, right? And that people can be educated into it. And they can't. It's a fixed psychological trait. And so a lot of the work that I do breaks down political orientation based on big five personality traits. Um and we could talk about that some more if you'd like. But so this isn't—you haven't come to politics from a, a kind of left-wing intelligentsia. You haven't—you haven't read Karl Marx and have decided that the state should control the means of production and things like that. This is a, an expression of your emotional makeup. That's right. And then I was after President Trump was elected, the vast majority of people on the left 
were screaming about the idiocy. I, I shouldn't say that. That's an overstatement. A lot of people went very firmly into criticizing Trump, the people who voted for him, everything about it. And my reaction is always that when there, whenever there is an altercation, a confusing point, the first thing you need to do is look in the mirror. And so I thought as a Democrat, and I, I wasn't much involved in politics. Before 2016, I thought democracy would do just fine without me. But I could look in the mirror, which is what I wanted to do, and I saw a whole bunch of ways that I thought that our that my party had misstepped, and I thought that I could speak to that in a certain way, and um, wound up having an unbelievable amount of access and opportunity to do that, to explain to them the ways people make decisions, to explain to them the ways that polarization was happening and they were contributing to it, and what could be done. And me with two compatriots of mine, friends of mine. Uh, Billy Ray, the screenwriter, and Marshall Herskovitz, screenwriter and showrunner, worked with 30 candidates. I only wanted to work with House candidates in red districts. And we worked with 30 of them and 21 of them won their seats and flipped seats, um, which isn't something we can take sole responsibility for. These are spectacular candidates. But what, for me, I was very interested in the message frame of how do you how do you convey values that I think are classically liberal values through a conservative lens so that you're making an actually a bigger tent and you're not putting people off and you're joining and you're figuring out how to get things done. So for you, Trump was a political awakening. You'd probably always identified as a Democrat mm-hmm. and perhaps voted Democrat. But in terms of becoming something more, someone who was trying to then influence politics, it was the election of Donald Trump that, that flicked that switch for you. It was the election of Donald Trump as a symptom of what was actually going on. I don't think Donald Trump is the problem. He certainly is the problem now in a variety of ways. But what's the bigger problem is what's underlying all of this. And, you know, you have very similar, dy- you know, dynamics that are going on here. And so a lot of what I was talking about is to try to explain to people. I'm very interested in the psychology. Do you know big five personality theory? Is that something you're familiar with? Vaguely, but do you if remember, you could give us more detail, okay, that'd do you be remember, wonderful. Do you know Myers-Briggs? That I've, test that says, like, you know, you're an introvert, you're an extrovert. Yes. It's basically a theory of psychology that breaks down personality types. And the structure, the way that your hierarchy goes on those tests predicts to an enormous extent whether you're liberal or conservative. Let's just remove political party right now. Yeah. So as I mentioned, liberals are higher in openness and empathy. You can understand why that's good for artists. Um, but, you know, we get very sanctimonious. We think we can educate people into higher empathy and that people who don't have higher empathy are, are lacking. And so we can condescend to them. Conservatives are higher in another trait. It's not that they don't have empathy, but they tend higher in a trait called conscientiousness. Now, that trait is divided into industriousness and orderliness. So those stereotypes that we have of the very clean-cut conservative and like the dirty hippie liberal, they're based in a, in a type of reality. So here are some things that higher conscientiousness codes for, is correlated to. Better health, better finances, more stable marriages, and longer lifespan. So when I went back to talk to the Democratic caucus after Trump's election, I said, look, before we go and tell everyone how we need to educate them into higher empathy. Like, let's keep in mind they're doing okay with their stable marriages and longer lifespans, right? So that's not the trick. The trick isn't to shame them for their lack of empathy. Um, and so what I've, what, one of the things that I did is I looked at key issues, whether it's gun discipline, whether it's ICE roundups or immigration, and tried to articulate them in a way that's in keeping with a high conscientious model, which is an act of joining with them. The other thing is, is that it's a fixed psychological trait. So this would be like going up to Tony Blair and saying, Tony, why can't you just be an introvert? 
It's an impossibility. Someone's not suddenly going to switch because you've shamed them into it. So all you do is scold them and drive them further to polarization. And I feel like if we're willing to understand the benefit of these mindsets working in, in concert together, then we can we can actually talk and get to solutions instead of just virtue signaling for dopamine hits and driving ourselves out further and further in these communities where we've unfriended everyone who doesn't agree with us already. I mean, this is a huge issue in America. And you're absolutely right. It's a big problem here as well. And, and, and the divide in Britain isn't just along left wing and, and right wing at classic um, wings anymore. The Brexit referendum here opened up a new split, which was Leave and Remain, which actually played along a different fault line, which is open and closed, which is, I'm sure, something that's been discussed in America, that actually it's not a left-wing, right-wing divide anymore. And the sort of thing that you're describing, where these are about values that people identify with, can cut across left and right. You're right. However, the, the, the closed versus open, that high-trade openness I talked about, High trade openness tends liberal. And again, like let's get rid of parties and just talk liberal versus conservative because that can be classical liberals. But 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 lower openness, which is a version of closeness, conservatives like boundaries around things. Right. So build a wall is a brilliant campaign slogan. They like boundaries around gender. Right. Like what's all this nonsense of non-binary? There's two boundaries are sort of organizing and helpful. And that's a job that's evolutionarily selected. Think about indigenous tribes when Europeans came and were offering them, you know, handshakes and smallpox blankets. Like it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective to have some in-group favoritism and to have a bit of a stiff arm to people who who aren't just like you. And that's one of the jobs of conservatives is for in-group preservation. But the job for liberals is to say, look... Of course, we need to have borders around a country, but if you build that wall and make it too impenetrable, new ideas and people won't get in and we will stagnate and die. So the job of liberals is to make sure that we have the diversity and the interest and the lifeblood. But it only works if it, if they're in concert together. They have to have they, there have to be good faith members who have some regard and respect for what the other side brings and the differences between the orientations for the parties are the very things that can cause a a society to actually be in balance. And when it's off balance, like in some ways, I don't want to, I'm not sufficiently educated to speak properly in England about your political system, but it strikes me that at a time when you most needed the most electable labor candidate, you chose one who, who was not the most electable. But part of that happening is because the because he was most needed. So like at times of polarization, the instinct tends to be to continue to move further apart and further polarized until you can get somebody who understands what to do, the, a transcendent figure, a Nelson Mandela, right? You need somebody who can somehow comprehend the differences between people and see the value in different approaches and the ways that there are strengths in those differences and be uniting in a way that's transformative. And as long as we're pinging each other on Twitter and, you know, screaming at each other at Thanksgiving dinners and double downing and moving, you know, keep keep moving further to identify our, you know, the furthest extreme opinions, it's not going to happen. You talk about the differences between liberals and, and conservatives. Obviously, and maybe this is more of an American thing, socialism doesn't get talked about perhaps as much in America as it does here in the UK, where Bernie Sanders, to me, looks like a socialist. I mean, could you could he make any claim to be a liberal? Could he? Yes. Well, he does. I mean, I, everyone's very confused about what socialism means in America. It, it just, it's... 
it's a bad thing, right? It's a bad, for the most part. I mean, look, Bernie is ascendant. Bernie right now is the odds on favorite to win the nomination, which which I think would, would be problematic because I don't think that he's going to have as clear uh, an inviting hand extended to a lot of people in the center and, and the right. I think it, 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 it's it's a there's echoes of your election here and how that went. Um, but in terms of socialism, I mean, yes, that's considered liberal. I mean, it's the far end of liberal in America is how we view that. Because there are there are, there are traits particularly when you get to the extremes, obviously this is revolutionary to say it, where effectively you have conservatives on the left who are consider themselves left-wing because they believe in things like a minimum wage and rights for workers, perhaps some state ownership of and state provision of public services and maybe some industries. But actually when it comes to dealing with outsiders, they're just as conservative as people who would vote for the Republicans. That's interesting. But I'd say to... that's less of a dynamic in America. Okay. It tends to be more consistent. Um but look, I mean, if you go far enough left, you wind up on the right. You know, and right now it's upside down world where we're like, really, the Republicans are fans of Russia and America is the hard law. I'm sorry. And the Democrats are the rule of law society. And what angers me a lot from the far left is like we should be the ones when they're burning copies of Ulysses who show up with buckets of water. Like, I don't like the 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 harsh cancellation culture aspect of the far left. I think that it's damaging. And for a long time, I was harder on that because I actually have an, like, you know, part of why I came to this in some ways is my book tours are half in red states and blue states. You know, I have a lot of friends who were gay ACLU lawyers or born again Christian Navy SEAL snipers. I just have too many friends across too diverse, too many different dominance hierarchies with value sets to dismiss any one whole cloth or any one group whole cloth. Um, so I think it's so important to always have, to always be working and engaging with people who don't necessarily care or need anything from you or need to agree with you, right? Who will, who will kind of like my Navy SEALs friends are, they're thrilled and think it's kind of cool that I'm a best-selling novelist, but they don't need anything from me. They're not going to not, you know, snap at me if I get out of line. And the same goes for me to them. And so the, the more that we start to lose that, the more that we start to lose, any sort of ability to to understand the the mixes that need to be in play and the things that define humans. And so for me, the the, the, the cancellation culture aspect of the left is really troubling because that it seems the opposite of what we should be doing. And so, so I'm sorry. Oh, no, please so, continue. Well, one of the things that was harder for me initially was I can have a perfectly fine time talking or dealing with the hardcore MAGA hat wearing crowds in Ohio, Michigan, like where we need to win you know, for Democrats and how we talk to them. And I was very dismissive of the sort of social justice warriors in the far left because I felt like you're on our side. You should know better, right? You should have better values. And so it took me a while to realize and to sort of reflect on the fact that me being harsher with them, I need to extend to them at least the same care and listening and understanding. Like if I can do that to people who are on the right, and I'm not talking alt-right or far-right, but just, you know, the, the main swath of people, I need to have a more charitable open eye also to my own party and people who might even be further in extreme. And one of the things that I realized is, is you can nitpick a lot of this stuff, like the cancellation or the microaggressions. But part of what is being said beneath that is, 
Look, if you're in charge and your system is in charge, you better do a better job than you have been at taking care of people who have fallen off the dominance hierarchy, who are struggling and who are different and aren't doing well. And you can choose to engage with some of the more extreme stuff, right? Like you like you can do I could do with the right to just dismiss the whole right and dismiss all Republicans. Or I, or what I'm trying to do even now with aspects of the left that we're trying to wrangle back is to try to understand what is happening beneath that. And it's sort of like if you're in a fight with somebody and they're they've they're throwing out a lot of different things, you can you can pull everything up in your cerebral cortex and nitpick them to death, or you can try and figure out what they're actually trying to say. And so that's hard. It's hard to listen. It is, but sometimes, particularly with your own side. Um... If people are damaging to the cause, how do you unite with a group of people that are destroying you? Sometimes it's better. It's to such a hard question, and it's such a relevant question. And I'm trying. I mean, but we, but it took a lot of it took a lot of work and thought. I mean, I went into an event. Billy had invited me to speak to a bunch of uh, a group of young activists who are young workers in Hollywood. So this is like the bubble inside the bubble inside the bubble. <laughs> And he just said, you know, I need you to talk to them. We need to figure out how to talk to them to use their muscle, their social media in a way that is going to be strategic. And these are people who thought the furthest aspects of the Democratic Party were the most palatable. And that's when I had to really go off and think and go, do I want to go in and tell everyone, here's why it's not strategic. Here's why your views are silly. Like, here's why we need more due process of the law. And then and then sort of reinforce for them their concerns, right? Like another, even though I'm I'm on the cause and we've done all this stuff and I've helped the party and done a ton of pro bono work, but do I want to go in and be sort of condescending and sanctimonious and know-it-all-y the same way that I'm cautioning Democrats not to do in red districts for people who voted for Trump? And so I had to really think about that differently and think, because my I had so much anger about the fact that it was destroying it. And I went in and had a very different approach to talk to them. And by the end of the evening, we'd won much, if not all of the room over through a more considered touch that was much more respectful about where they were coming from. And was op- I was open. I was willing to listen more. And did you win them over? Yes. So what are the, because this is a, a huge debate happening in the Labour Party here at the moment. How do you unite people on the, effectively the far left of the Labour Party, the Democrat Party, with people closer to the centre, because often those divisions are more severe than, as you say, the ones that people have with their opponents in other parties. Well, what you always want to do, if you engage in content, it's like if you get in an argument with your spouse or your kid or one of your friends. If you engage in content, you get nowhere. What you need to engage in is process, right? So a lot of the Americans, to give one example, Alyssa Slotkin, who is one of my favourite Democrat. She won in Michigan. She tells the story when she was 20 years CIA. She's one of the badass women of Congress. I mean, she's just an exceptional human being and leader. But she was working on an assembly line at Ford. And one of the workers said, look, she said, why do you vote for Trump? He said, for 40 years, my life's a straight line going down. I work harder and harder. I make less money. My health care costs go up. Doesn't matter if it's a Bush or if it's a Clinton or if it's a Obama. He said, I consider myself a stage four cancer victim and Trump is my experimental chemo. And one of the things that I said to the Democrats when I talked to them, when I talked to the caucuses, if you can't understand, and let's eliminate the 5% on either fringe that just are personality disordered 
people who are not worth our time or actually hardcore racists or actually hardcore you know, Antifa terrorists. So I'm talking about the swath of everyone in the middle. If you can't understand what made somebody vote for Trump all the way down to the spinal cord, if you can't give that argument and understand why for them that was even an act of, of courage and desperation, you're in no position to change their mind. It's no different than anything else that we have in our personal lives. And the same thing's true with the left. And I realized I wasn't doing it with the further left because I was so aggravated about microaggressions and all these other things, which are easy to nitpick over. But I started to really think about if I was growing up now in this system, boy, would I feel removed from politics and would I feel that I get screamed at and condescended to all the time and that nothing's safe. And I can't say anything without risking severe reputational damage. And I know that groups who are in need are not being taken care of well. And if you can get beneath the content to the process, like when you're in an argument, right, with somebody, that's where the solution is because then you're actually seeing somebody and you can empathize with it or you can tangle up in facts all day and prove them wrong or they prove you wrong and you don't get anywhere. And it's ultimately like one of the things I think that a lot of conservatives wanted to know is, look, we're going to make some changes. America will still be America. America will still feel like America. And if somebody in labor was able to articulate that right during the, 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 you know, Brexit leave, whatever the new name is that I'm supposed to have properly, uh, to be able to say, you know, we're, we're going to make changes. We're going to keep the economy on track, but you know, England will still feel like England, right? There's going to be changes. We're going to take them. We, we get your concerns. You're going to be able to hold on to where your values are. And we understand that things are moving. There's an underlying thing that needs to be spoken to. And if you don't access that and it's just facts and pensions and taxes and Europe and all this other stuff and then divisive politics from either side, everything winds up in a muddle. And basically it's like, who wants a change? Raise your hand. And that's all it is. You're someone who understands stories and heroes specifically. What is it about Bernie Sanders and to some extent here, Jeremy Corbyn, because they don't look and sound like stereotypical heroes. They're not good looking. They're old. They seem quite uncool to the average person. Why do these heroes seem to exist specifically on the left, specifically now? I don't think they just exist on the left, but it is more so. But you raise an interesting point. And I think the point is, you know, we overuse this word authenticity in politics, right? And one thing I say about Donald Trump is he lies all the time, but he's fundamentally honest. You know, when his ego has been bruised, you know, when he's frustrated, you know when he's vindictive. You know when he's angry. Because you can't hide it. Right. He's, his emotional reaction is his emotional reaction. And there was a moment in the second debate, which I might have wrong, with him and Hillary Clinton. I don't know how many people here are familiar with the debate, so I'll spell it out a little bit. But she found someone, a, a woman named Alicia Machado, who was someone from the Miss Universe contest that, that Trump had voted on. And he'd referred to her in denigrating fashion. She was... Um, Latina and he'd called her Miss Housekeeping and she put weight on and he called her Miss Piggy. And there was a moment in the debate where Hillary said, well, I have in the front row Alicia Machado, who you referred to as Miss Housekeeping, Miss Piggy. And Trump's got really flustered. Where did you get her? Where did you find that? Where did you see that? And, and I remember all my liberal friends, Democratic friends were like, oh, she just nailed him. Like, like what a debate moment, right? Like if you're judging a debate at Yale, she would have crushed him. But what I saw was two people on stage, one who was genuinely flustered and angry and acting that way, and another who was 
trotting out a piece of, carol- of carefully produced oppo research, pretending as if it was spontaneous, laying it down, and then acting sort of beatific and dignified and presidential. So our cerebral cortex can only hold two to three facts at a time. But visually, we take in 10... A second, I'm sorry. Visually, we take in 10,000 pieces of information. So as much as all the people at home scoring on their cerebral cortex yell debate team, what other people are seeing is authentic versus inauthentic. Bernie Sanders is fundamentally authentic. I know Bernie. I've sat in a room with him. He is who he is. He's not focus grouped. And I don't know as much about Corbyn, but it strikes me that he is who he is, right? He's not He's not getting his hair blow dried for, you know, 45 minutes like John Edwards did in the presidential. And in the absence of leadership that is that is genuine and authentic and embodied and empowered and correct and unified and virtuous and in a confusing time where everyone feels compromised, people will take somebody who says and acts what they really feel because it's the best indication of leadership. Trump says and thinks what he feels. He's not checking polls. He's not waiting for when it's convenient for the Twitter cycle. So in the absence of feeling that there's someone who does that and does that properly, people will gravitate to somebody who displays the fixings of leadership. And part of that is being a swaggery alpha or having all the answers or showing up kind of disheveled or just saying what it is you think. Because it's not the same glossy nonsense that we've been worn down on with with a, with a media that has with packaged media bites. So in a field that includes Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Buttigieg? Buttigieg. Very well done. I said that right. Good show. Um, Is Bernie the best candidate to beat Donald Trump then? No. Who is? Who is who's a viable candidate? Boy. Of the people right now who are going, I would say... It's it's so complicated. So so the one of my favorite candidates who we work with a lot, who just dropped out of the race, is someone called Michael Bennett. He's a senator from Colorado. None of you have heard of him here. He's a he was not an ideal candidate for a number of reasons. He would have been a spectacular president. Um, Biden is the most logical choice. He has a huge amount of the African-American vote, which is a cornerstone of the Democratic get out the vote process. People know him. He can actually talk in normal guy language. I think he has the most of that feel. Um, Buttigieg is, is clearly brilliant. I'm he's I'm right in the blind spot for Buttigieg. So he hits my confirmation bias. I'm a kind of college educated white guy. So I see him, you know, playing a sonata and speaking Icelandic. And I'm like, this this guy's incredible. <laughs> But in another perspective, he's sort of like the perfect product of helicopter parenting almost, right? Yeah. I mean, he's got he's like a show pony. And he's and so he's for some people, they would want like Clint Eastwood for president and him to be the chief of staff, right? So I think which I think he's enormously capable. I think he's enormously talented. And the question is, does he need four more years or eight more years? to sort of embody a feeling of more gravitas. I think he'd be a, a, a really good president now. I'm, I really like Amy Klobuchar a lot. I think she's very um, moderate. She's, she's moderate. And because she's a woman, I think she could unite the left because it's exciting to have a female candidate. She's enormously capable. And one of the things I like about her is when she was in the Senate, she, her vote was always the way that the country went. 
and not because she was pole tested. Just her gut instincts were sort of at the dead center, the fulcrum of the seesaw of the party. Um, and, you know, Biden's an obvious answer. Bloomberg has unlimited amounts of money. And I think he's a very good bet for like the never Trumpers, maybe the country club Republicans, the Mitt Romney Republicans. Right. And and aspects of the party. So I don't it's it's very and he's been a Republican for a period. Been, yeah. And he's very Republican. I mean, he, he and Mitt Romney. I mean, it's, there's not a lot of distance between a conventional Republican, a non-Trump Republican and him. So it's, it, there, it's enormous turmoil right now. And to be honest, like even in the four or five days since I've been here, I've been calling back home a lot, trying to kind of untangle it. So oh, it's fascinating watching it from a British perspective. Um, and, and I'm sure the same goes for when I talked to I was in Berlin this week and people just can't understand Brexit at all in Germany. Mm. Um, I didn't vote for it, but I can understand it in the same way that you describe. You have to understand why people voted for Donald Trump, even though you wouldn't do it yourself. In terms of where politics is now, then, and the way you talk about it is in a very different way to the way that classically political people talk about politics, where it's about policies and an identity of the role of the state in people's lives. In a way, what you're saying is you need to appeal to people, regardless of what their view of the state is, and even not necessarily in terms of policies, but values first and connect with people at an emotional value based level and convince them that actually... A, a Democrat president would not be a threat to Republican values. How do you so just talk and us somebody that and somebody who is constantly bowing to the more extreme aspects of their party should not be trusted in leadership. So if if somebody is not vocally decrying Antifa, for instance, right, as they wear masks and take over a street in Portland and are assaulting cars and yelling slurs at people. If the if Democratic leadership is afraid to say that draw a line and say that is fundamentally not the Democratic Party, like they can call themselves liberal or whatever. We are not that. They're not to be trusted. But how do you convince um, and not necessarily so much Trump voters, but just classic Republicans? How do you get a Republican to vote for a Democrat in in this? OK, period? so I'll, let's let's just take health care. That's a good, clean, yes. easy one. So here's a high empathy argument for health care. Right. Jimmy Kimmel's son had a very expensive surgery. You'd be opposed to it and you'd want Jimmy Kimmel's son to die. How dare you? You have no empathy. Like if only you had greater education, you'd be more human like the rest of us. That's sort of the conventional democratic approach, right? Here's another approach that you could take that keeps the left, but is also welcoming to the right to say, look, we already have a baseline of medical care in the United States of America. It's called emergency rooms. It's illegal for emergency rooms to turn away people. And also, we don't let people die in the streets. It's immoral and it's fundamentally un-American. But also, can you imagine the health risk to our schools and our communities if we had nobody getting vaccinated running around and people who were sick and couldn't get any kind of care? Conservatives are also very concerned with the robustness of the community. So then you say, look, the average cost of an emergency room visit in the United States is $1,233. The average cost of a vaccination is $19. So as dollars and cents, Republicans and conservatives, we are paying for those anyways. When emergency room visits happen, the hospitals pass on the cost to by hiking their fees, which insurance companies have to pay more for, which raise your premiums. So we're doing it anyways. Do we want to do it intelligently or not? And so as, as dollars and cents, Republicans and Democrats, which do you want to pay? Do you want to pay $1,233 or $19? Additionally, healthcare 
is an entrepreneurial value. Canada has a higher entrepreneurism rate than America, which is ridiculous, right? So does Denmark. And part of that is, is if you have a baseline of medical care and you want to go build your future, you want to go start a new company, you want to go and, and create more wealth and create more taxable jobs and create new a whole new economy and a whole new system, and you're afraid to make that leap, because, you know, if you do, your son who needs insulin, you might not afford it. You're not going to grow the economy. So there's an anti-capitalist argument to be made. And then you can go further from there and say, you know, if you're if you're a, you know, you're someone running a business, do you want your workers sick? What's the cost to business? If you get sick, what happens to your show? Right. If your engineers get sick, if your producers get sick. Right. The whole venture falls apart. And then if a kid gets sick, it can take out a whole family. Right. A mom needs to stay home. And then, the you know, the dad needs to stay home, depending on what the schedule is. And it starts to fall apart and eat away at it. So there's a way to discuss healthcare that is way more open minded than what the initial approach is. And some people can say, if you're thinking like that and if you're going to be reasonable and smart on the finances of it, of course, as a conservative, we still have empathy. But if your argument is all empathy and offering nothing else, we can't do that because we'd pay for everyone's surgery in the world. So when you help Democratic candidates, I mean, how do you start? Do you just say, right, I want to help the Democratic Party out? And because of your platform, maybe those doors open a, a little bit easier. Is everyone receptive? Do some people say, I'm not having some author tell me what about politics? You know, do, do people... Am I allowed to re- swear on the podcast? Of course you can, yeah. So there was a moment that I had when we first addressed the caucus. We went back and to some extent... It was right after 2016. And I think the Dem- we had more access than we reasonably should have. Uh, people are tentative. And it started off being like, well, we tell stories. We could help you tell your stories. Then we realized it was like, wait a minute. This isn't about Hollywood because Hollywood's just as in the bubble. But Billy Marshall and I saw through to sort of cultural trends from very different angles. My angle is very psychological, you know, in terms of the approach. And um And so we had an opportunity to address the caucuses. And I talked about the mechanisms of decision making. I talked about how people make up their minds. I've written a book that took place in mind control cults and went undercover into mind control cults to really understand the ways that we can influence behavior. And I got to the end of my speech and a senator who I don't want to name stood up and said, I have a question for you. Um, Why do so many Democrats, why do so many Republicans who voted for Trump, whose policies are hurting him, continue to support him, even though it's not to their benefit? And I thought for a moment, and all this went through my head, I thought, look, I'm out here. One of the things why we were able to have some success is we ask for no money and no credit and no permission. And if you don't need those three things, you can really move the world, right? And so I wasn't beholden to anybody. And if they wanted to boot me, I could happily go back to my house and my two Rhodesian Ridgebacks and type books because I and I actually like my family and I'm fine to not need to do it. And I thought, I'm going to actually say the truth and we'll see where that goes. And I said, well, the question was, you know, why do so many Republicans continue to support Trump even if his policies are hurting them? I said, if you had to choose between clinging to a set of facts that aren't internally consistent or admit that you are a bigoted, uneducated, stupid, misogynistic, racist asshole – which would you choose? And there was sort of dead silence. And I thought, this is it now. And then one senator nodded and another nodded and everyone, they, they were open to, they were open to hearing of, I can't say the truth. It's not like I uniquely have the truth, but they were open to hearing a perspective that they hadn't heard. And I just said, imagine instead of all this bashing of Trump and his supporters, imagine if any one of you came out and said, 
I know a lot of you didn't feel seen in the last election and you didn't feel heard and you didn't feel represented by the choices. And I know a lot of you voted for somebody who is outside of politics, who you thought was a successful businessman to come in and do something different and to kind of end polarization. I said, you can skip the whole part that you insult him. Obviously, he hasn't fixed polarization. I said, imagine going next to saying, look, healthcare costs are enormously on the rise, right? We're having problems with education. A lot of you are probably concerned now, and we want you to know we see you now, we hear you now, and here's what we're going to do for you. But to do that requires a level of humility, right? It requires not being seen as the person who is virtue signaling your hatred because you're so good and he's so bad. And, and, you, and it's, it, it's a need to signal your resentment and frustration and your values and nobody gets it and you're misunderstood and you've been murdered and you have all the answers versus actually trying to solve the problem by saying, look, you might have had some reasons for doing that. I get that. If I undermine you or demean you, why are you going to come on board? I understand why you might have done that. I understand that maybe it's not going the way you want. And I'm humble enough to recognize that I, I, we needed to listen better. And here's, here's our path forward. But you have to care about actually getting something done, right? Instead of just pounding your chest. You do. But in politics, in terms of defeating Trump then and who the ideal candidate would be, and let's, let's just build an ideal candidate that perhaps isn't one of the people named that's just like almost like a Frankenstein's monster, is it's one thing to be able to say those things. That wouldn't cut through for everyone. You know, five different people could deliver those exact same words to to different levels of acceptability to the public. Some people would say, I get it when he says it, but not when he says yeah. it. So... Um, we had a politician here called Andy Burnham, who's the mayor of Manchester, who stood in the Labour leadership contest against Jeremy Corbyn. And he said, I'd been saying this stuff for five years, but he just embodied it more than I did. Corbyn looked and felt more like a change than the guy stood next to him, who was more classically a British politician. A nice suit, had been a special advisor in government, had been to uh, Oxford and, and that sort of classic British politician, even though he was from the north. Corbyn embodied, looked more like a rebel than this bloke did. So... Who, as well as saying those those things to appeal to those people, what is the almost the cosmetic element that, that a politician that's going to beat Trump needs? So that's a very incisive and smart question, and it's complicated. The most rebellious act right now, let me back up just one step. Do you, do you know the concept of pluralistic ignorance? It's, it's, it's used in cults. Like everyone's basically miserable, but they're not allowed to talk to each other. Right. So there's no vertical, only vertical relationships reporting up. North Korea, pluralistic ignorance. Like everyone's not delighted to be starving to death while he's like executing his uncle with right M60s. There's a very similar concept going on right now in America. I think there's a, and, and in England, I believe too. I think there's a broad swath of people in the middle, the majority, the, the, this silent majority, to borrow a phrase from another era. Yeah. But people are afraid to talk out. If they're like, hey, you know what? Maybe this is kind of half reasonable and this isn't on Twitter. What's the upside, right? I have a reasonable, you know, uh, Haley Stevens passes a small bill that, that helps farmers reduce their loan ratio. Is that going to be a news headline? Right. People are afraid to step out because when they step out, they get hammered by the extremes or bots from Russia and China. And it's scary. The most radical thing anyone can do right now is to speak the truth. That's the actual truth that's embodied all the way down. That's what they think. And to your point, that actual truth is different for different people. It's like when we work with actors, 
So there's stuff Tom Cruise can do that Jason Momoa can't do and shouldn't do, right? There's different lanes that you find. What you want in acting is to is to have somebody embody a character that is their version of the character that has an internal alignment. And so a lot of the thing that, that when we're working with presidential candidates or other candidates is it's the same thing we all work on in our lives, right? You want to be integrated. You don't want to be one person at home and one person at work, right? You want, but, but it's almost a spiritual or psychological process of an individuation. Sometimes I see it in a candidate, but they're just, they're not there yet. They'll be yes. there in five years or 10 years. And so he can dress however he dresses and do whatever he does or be, you know, rotund and smoke cigars like Winston Churchill. But like no one for a minute is forgetting that there's a sort of thundering power that emanated from Churchill, right? And so there, it, it's different for everybody. So if somebody had arisen who – it's not just that Corbyn was disheveled. It's that he was authentic in a version of who he was. You know, you know? Because that's the danger is that people see a particular type of politician do well. And say, well, I'm going to copy what it is about them that's attractive rather than realizing I need to find what it is about me that is effectively what makes me who of I course. am and make that attractive rather than going, well, that politician drinks a pint and smokes a cigarette. So I'm going to start doing that. That's right. So and it's, like, it's, it's true in everything. I mean, it's so obvious. But for some reason in politics, we detach it from everything. Right. Who's the cool kid in school or university? It's not the, the third one who could imitate the top two. Right. Who's the best football player? It's not, you know, Messi doesn't play like, you know, Ronaldo. Right. With writing, I'm not trying to write like Lee Child. I'm not trying to write like John Grisham. Right. I'm trying to write like myself. And the close, the more I can learn to write like myself and figure out the kind of thriller that I'm writing and what that means based on who I am as a person the better reception that I can get and the more that I think so much about that is about alignment. And we know this intuitively. We know it with kids. When you're raising a kid, you don't want to raise a kid in your model of what your kid should be. What you, I mean, maybe you do before you have kids, right? Then you, then you get kids and you're like, boy, I really overvalued this nurture thing. You know, this There's is really a- resonating with producer Daisy here. <laughs> But, you know, you're you're like they're they're who they are and you're trying to have guardrails for them to maximize who they are. I had a ton of energy and my parents were like, get you into sports, right? Like get let's channel you in ways that are that are good for you. You know, if somebody's really argumentative, you get them in a debate, right? If someone's really physical, have them play rugby or else they'll be fighting in the streets. Everyone. This is something we know. We know intuitively in our relationships. And we've just decided in politics that this is a different category that's unfixable and everyone must be pure and everyone must hold the right answers and we're not going to have room for it and everyone should imitate everyone else. But these political cultures evolved as a reaction to the Labour Party in Britain is is obviously something that I sort of know quite well. Labour in the 1980s was rebellious, was uh, indisciplined, had huge battles with its hard left that it struggled to contain. It then moved uh, partly inspired by Bill Clinton's Democrats to a highly professional period when Tony Blair was Prime Minister and uh, the politics of the party was better controlled. Candidates started to look and behave a particular way. Not not entirely, but there was a sense that this party had professionalised and for a period that was highly attractive to the public. That then was rebelled against because people said, actually, a lot of these people just sound a particular way. They all sound the same. Actually, we want something that is a bit more, in inverted commas, authentic. We're now moving to a period where a spirit of rebelliousness is probably more attractive than it was in that period. 
politicians now obviously are in a, a, a difficult spot if you're around the centre ground, so around the mainstream, the Conservative and the Labour Party in this country and the Liberal Democrats, where they don't sort of know how to behave. They think, well, I still need to be professional. I still need to wear a suit and put a tie on. I still need to treat the office with the so, respect that it deserves. But how do I suggest a sense of rebelliousness? But, you know, so, right, so, but so what you're saying is something that's entirely externally focused and that you've put your finger on the problem, right? There are kids in school saying, well, how, oh, I guess I should wear, you know, this brand of jeans and have these shoes. And it's like, is that someone you want leading you? Is that someone like when, you know, the, the hard choices of leadership you know, this job is for the commander in chief of the armed services of the United States of America. Do I really want somebody who is, you know, getting all the woke catchphrases right from Twitter that morning? Is that somebody who you want to lead in a war? And so a lot of that is, is you're right. It's hard for them. But if it's hard for you, maybe you shouldn't be the leader of the free world, right? Until you've done a little bit of work and figured out where you are and where you're coming from and holding to that. Because, I don't I don't get a sense. Look, politicians I agree with and don't agree with. I don't think Reagan was like, you know, up nights wondering about whether what kind of suit he should wear or not. I don't think Obama spent too much time worrying about the latest press cycle and that they were mad that he ate mustard on the wrong meal. Like those are those are embodied men. You know, Margaret Thatcher, that's an embodied woman. Nancy Pelosi. Like these are people who are where they are all the way down, you know? There are so many similarities, and particularly when you talk about woke catchphrases, and particularly in terms of social media. How much do you think the election of Donald Trump, and to some extent with, with, with Brexit and Boris Johnson here, is a rebellion amongst the wider public against some of these things? Because what people consume on Twitter, I look at what people say on Twitter compared to how people vote, and it's like... Twitter is a different country to the one that just went to the ballot box. And we saw a problem with Kamala Harris, who actually was a wonderful centrist candidate who is palatable for a whole variety of reasons. Like here you have this brilliant woman of color, district attorney, law and order, moderate Democrat, like no brainer. She hired a very young staff. And I think they spent an inordinate amount of time on Twitter and were completely skewed from the population. It's a different animal. And so I think... I think that that's galling. There's deeper fundamental problems. The working class in America has not been taken care of. And that's also by, you know, President Clinton, President Obama, President Obama, who I personally am a big fan of mostly across the board, if not in all things. But I have an enormous amount of admiration for him. It has been hard to be working class American regardless. And you people forget Nancy, uh, Hillary Clinton was the... Um, Wall Street candidate, right? Obama, when he was elected, had the fewest bundled donations under $100,000 of anyone in history. His second term, he had the most, beaten only by Hillary Clinton. Working class has been not particularly well looked after. And so when you're not well looked after, and I think if you're an electrician who's out of work in Ohio or a factory worker who's been laid off and you've lost your health care and you have a elderly parent in a home and you have a special needs kid and you don't know what your next job is and there aren't options and you turn on the TV and there's students at Yale protesting and about white male privilege, it induces rage in you to be told that you're the problem. I hear so few American Democrats use the phrase working class. It, 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 and I know I'm consuming this from a distance, 
But the emphasis on middle class as a phrase in American politics seems to have just completely been dominant. In, in the Labour Party here, a phrase that was often used that became much mocked was hardworking families. It was this, this, this idea that Labour was always targeting yeah. a, a family. Ordinary this, people. Yeah, hard, yeah, working hard for hardworking families was this sort of phrase. And, it, and you understood why they were targeting those people. But I always sense you're alienating people who don't fit that profile. Well, and you think about... And I was always shocked that actually it felt like Donald Trump... Talked about working class people from from this distance from the UK, consuming it from a distance from hundreds of miles away. Um, for, he was the first person, I think, in a long time that really struck me was targeting his message at working class people more than he was at middle class That's people. That's right. And his policies are worse for them. Yes, but he's talking but, about them. But he talks about them. And they'd rather have somebody talk about them and acknowledge them and maybe take a hit than have somebody who gives you mouth service over and over and doesn't do it. Demographics in America, life expectancy in every single category from the beginning of the founding of America is a straight line going up for longevity, except in the last five years, except with white men. And it's going down due to the opioid crisis, suicide layoffs, veterans. The the rates for veterans and farmers of suicide is unbelievable. If you lay the opioid crisis map down and you lay down a map of districts that went to Trump, it's like... The Venn diagram overlap is staggering. And he was speaking to that. Now, he obviously spoke and had he had a lot of tactics and approaches that I personally found uh, re- repelling. It's not that's not where I am. But he he fundamentally could know where the pressure points are. And he's also brilliant. Like American males, for instance, make their decisions economically, not just males, people, but but it's more the men based on an economic rule called relative deprivation. Like as long as they're doing better than another class, people tend to get nervous, right? If, if As long as you're holding your own within your system and not competing outside of it. And we can, you know, so, so if you're doing better than immigrants, if you're in the black African-American community, let's say. And we can understand this intuitively. Like if, we, if you have a tough year and you can't afford to take a family vacation, your kids will understand. If you go to a store and you buy a toy for one and not the other, you're going to have problems, right? And so Trump quite brilliantly, even in districts that were improving under Obama, played up a sort of fictional relative deprivation, right? These Mexicans are taking all your jobs. The Chinese are laughing at you. It's, there, there's a pride element. And he understood where to where to put levers into these points of frustration and tug on them. And if people have felt ignored and unseen, you know, that was there. And then you cover it with a veneer of sort of a lot of condescension. You know, like one of the things that drives me crazy is Democrats always say all these people are voting against their interests. And I'll be at like a Hollywood fancy dinner and I'll think, how do you know what their interests are? Hmm. Like and oh, you mean just on the taxation level? Like what if their interests are family and community and church? And by the way, everyone at this table is voting against their interests because your interests are to vote for Donald Trump because you'll pay less taxes. So like, like look in a mirror, right? People are voting for a value set. And, to, and also, if you hear that you're voting against what's good for you, is that any way I can have a conversation with you to change your mind? I guess what it is, and people have uh, had a similar experience here, is it feels like in the last few years, for the first time, say since World War II, people have voted against what would be widely regarded as their economic Mm self-interest. That that seems to be a new development. That actually the economy is not necessarily, or the way we talk about the economy isn't necessarily the the defining. But what do the what do the cultural elite usually vote in? 
well, Which it was, party? It, it was well, it, Labour maybe. Right. But people might not always ad- admit it. So in, in, in Britain, we have a phrase called shy Tories, which is a phenomenon that when when people are polled, they don't admit to voting Conservative in the same sort of numbers that they do when the election results are actually announced. So people are less inclined to say, I'm a Conservative, than they would be. That's so like the Brexit and the Trump poll problems, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And also what's been, what, what was a key change with Brexit, and obviously a referendum is a binary issue, so people perceived correctly that they had, their vote had, far more power than it would being funneled through a party political system was that people who'd never voted before came out in numbers that we'd never seen before. The sorts of people that would vote for Donald Trump that are feel left behind, don't feel like the dialogue is for them. Um, now, maybe a presidential system allows people that absolute power in a way. And I know the Electoral College is a, is a slight valve, but you you do have a binary choice in every state in America. Every voter in America gets to choose... The name is on the ballot paper. In Britain, we don't have that. You vote for a local candidate and then the people who gets the majority of those ends up forming a government. So maybe maybe the relationship is slightly more pure in America between the leader and the and the led than it is in the UK. Um, but those, but that, that phenomenon of people who previously, the left behind, whatever you... And I find these uh, labels terribly patronised, but these are the phrases that are used. People who have been left behind by globalisation, by, well, by, they feel left behind by a, a number of things. I thought also about, you know, we've talked a lot about millennials or how annoying they are and all this microaggression stuff, right? <laughs> and it's so interesting. And, and again, I came at this hard. I mean, I've been coming at this hard. Two years before Trump announced in the race, I was looking at this saying, we're going to be in big trouble and no one's waking up to it. I just saw all of this. But, you know, it's so interesting. So, And was Brexit a, a, a post on that journey for you? Did you see yeah. Britain vote to leave and go, right, this is now going right. to... This I see, is happening in a similar democracy. Yeah, the parallels are are pretty remarkable. But I was thinking a lot about this. And at one point after Trump's election, we went back and met with one of the top pollsters for Democrats in D.C. And he said that millennials or young voters, let's just call them, are no more likely to vote now than during Obama's second term. And so what we thought was, well, this is because they think the government is corrupt, right? Because nothing's fixed. Kind of like that factory worker I was telling you about of like, well, who cares? We're so distant from it. What are our interests with the economy? There's nothing we can do that makes a difference. And so we thought a lot about that or because we think they're lazy, right? And they don't care and, you know, they're less involved in everything. So I went from there to New York and I got to a place early and, and I, was, I had a meeting with a friend and she was hung up. And so two of her... Uh, not interns, but young um, female workers uh, came to just talk with me because I was in there as part of a book tour and they were kind of interested in that. So we were supposed to be talking about that. But I was like, what a great um, mini focus group. Like, here's these women, 24 and 27. And let me talk to them and figure out what's going on. So my assumption is if I'm in Manhattan, that they're going to be bubbly liberals, right? Neither one remembered who they vote for, voted for in the presidential. One said she wrote in somebody and she couldn't remember. And so I went through the list. I said, is it because you don't think that anything will happen for you in the government? It's too corrupt. And they said, well, not really. At the time, Beto was still a bit of a force. I said, is it that you want someone young and charismatic like Beto Rourke? They didn't know who he was. So then I went to my third supposition, which was, is it because there's nothing that impacts you? Like student loans. We talked about tying the student loan um, rate to the 10-year treasury. Like if student loans could impact you. And they're like, no, we don't care about that. And so I was really flailing around. And clearly they're not – these are very bright young women. They're not just lazy. And finally one of them said about 20 minutes in, you know what? There's not a single place 
that I can talk about politics, that anything good happens. If I post something on politics that's one position or another and people disagree with me, they'll go back through all of my tweets and social yes, media and yes. find something and get me fired. If I'm at the dinner table and I ask, and, and it's one side of my family or the other, I say the wrong thing. She said, I try not look at the TV when I walk by. If I have a question about something, if I say I don't know what's going on in Syria, I'm judged for not knowing what's going on in Syria, not being up on it. Yeah. And I had this realization that was like, right, if all that can happen to you by wading into politics when you're a young person is massive reputational and financial damage, of course you'd stay away from it. And we're the ones being smug about like these kids aren't involved. And we're the ones who are the ostensible adults are the ones setting that level of activity. Like go on Twitter with people you admire. Even I'm not merely talking about the president of the United States. Look at the tenor of conversation among adults and think about what we're doing in terms of trying to welcome people in to explore ideas, to explore their views, if their views are wrong. In our, and, and, you know, we're bankrupting them as surely as we are with a student debt crisis in, in America. It's just an intellectual and political bankrupting. We need to invent a new social media that, and the rules of it are that none of that stuff happens. We're that, trying to. We're working policed, on a project like that. That also has. So it'd be like Twitter, but you would you would have... Maybe links to news sources of left and right and centre, reputable things like the BBC and whatever, and comment that was clearly marked as libertarian, left wing, whatever, so people could like like a buffet of news, and but also with the Twitter function where people can chat and reply to each other, but it's basically regulated in a way that if it becomes abusive, people are kicked off far quicker. That would be amazing. So young people, to be fair, it's not just young people that are affected by this. It affects people of all ages who have their tweets trawled through and their reputations trashed and their pride hurt and whatever else. If you created a platform that was basically Twitter but better. Well, there's one that we're, there's a number of people working on one that's a free speech platform called ThinkSpot that I'm a contributor on. Marshall Herskovitz and I have a podcast. Jordan Peterson is on it. There's a variety of different brains. Uh, Michael Shermer is on it, who's the, 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 the head of Skeptic Magazine, and like Jocko Willeman. And so we're seeing if, if it can get a sort of traction with where there's civility in the comments. Um, it's hard. People are really conditioned. You know, one of the rules I want to always say about Twitter is you shouldn't be able to say anything on social media that you wouldn't walk up and tell yes. someone to their face. Yeah. You know, but we're so inured to it. My fear is because five years ago, people would have said, oh, you know, people say this on social media, they wouldn't say it to your face. I think increasingly people are saying it on social media and they, be they are becoming emboldened to say it to your face. Hmm. That actually, this is poisoning. This doesn't just exist in the social Internet realm. This is now starting to impact people where they think, actually, I would say it to his face. Hmm. We are emboldening people. Well, that's good because I have a few things I want to tell you that I've been waiting to say. Oh, God, <laughs> not you as well. <laughs> Crikey. Um, just, in, just to talk about some of the um, comic book stuff you've done. How, when you're writing something like Batman, does your politics bleed into that? Like, would you write a Batman, a Dark Knight comic in a different way to, say, a Republican writer? Would Batman, oh, be more, would Batman be more well, liberal it's a, it's in, a, in a Greg Hurwitz Batman comic? I mean, look, it's so funny because people are like, keep politics out of comics. And it's like comic book heroes were the original social justice warriors. I mean, they were like, you know, they were beating up Nazis. And I mean, they were about social issues. Um, the vigilantes as well. They're a menace. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, it's interesting writing a comic. It's different than the thrillers. If I'm writing an Orphan X book... That's my world, right? I set the rules. I set the tone. It's different than a movie or TV show because I'm, 
I'm not just the writer. I'm also the director and I'm the star and I'm hair and makeup and I'm the location scout. You do all of it. Comics is a collaboration with an artist, right? And so there's a give and take, but I do play with themes. Um, I play with themes in different ways. Um, five, six years ago, it's so funny some of these things that I was pulling at threads of. I wrote a comic um, with Batman called Voiceless. And it was about someone immigrating from Mexico to the United States because they had a dying son and needed medicine. And as I describe it now, probably half of your listenership will go, oh, that sounds like, you know, social justice tripe, right? But it wasn't... it was before that was something that was conversational. It was something I was really thinking about with immigration before it was sort of the forefront of the news. And also for me, it was a creative challenge, right? Because I wanted to write, it's a, it's a set of two comics that no word of dialogue is spoken and it's called voiceless. So it reflects the voicelessness and the powerlessness of the people. So I told it in pure visuals all the way through. Um, but if there's not a resultant emotional and psychological and creative thread to it, that's not for writing, right? That's for conversations like this or meetings that I have in politics. If I've already figured out everything I think before I write it, it's not real writing. It's propaganda then, right? It's Anne Rand. But but do you think about it to the extent where, even if it doesn't come through in the writing, in your mind, do you think, well, Bruce Wayne would be a Democrat and and the Joker would be a Republican? No. uh, Bruce... No, they might be reversed. I mean, Joker's like Antifa in a lot of ways. That's interesting. I don't. That's a really interesting question. Um, But I think that... Would they vote? Well, Joker wouldn't vote. Batman don't vote. (laughs) Batman don't text. Um, No, that's an interesting question. I I don't frame it that way. I mean, it tends to be, I, look, the thing is for me, that's the common line that underlines it is I hate bullies. I hate, I hate when people with power take advantage of people who are not in power. That's a lot of what Orphan X is about. Right. And there, there's a line from, you know, he's, he's taken out of a foster home at the age of 12 and trained to be an assassin. And I thought, how great would it be if the guy who took him out, instead of this being this sort of miserable, awful, dark thing, what if his handler became a father figure and actually loved him? And for me, there's two key lines that he's told when he's 12, around which the whole series coalesces. And it's when Jack Johns' handler says to him, the hard part isn't making you a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. And another part is Evan says, why did you choose me? He was the smallest kid at the foster home. And he said, you know what it's like to feel helpless and powerless. And I needed someone who knew that in their bones and who would never forget it. And so by the time we meet, Orphan X in the even the first book, he's grown up, he's committed all these assassinations, but he's left the program because his moral compass is unbroken. And he's basically a pro bono. He has an encrypted line. He's a pro bono assassin. People call him who are in desperate need, who are just in dire straits, who they or their family are being tortured by some force bigger than them. And Evan helps them because of this piece of himself. And that tends to be the 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 frame through which I see things. That's the frame through which I saw Batman is if you could break the rules and have an embodied shadow, right? I mean, Jung used to say that the power in a man's personality comes from his capacity to commit violence. It's not the doing it, right? And there's a little bit of that when we talk about presidential candidates is you want someone who's embodied and forceful and, you know, you'd you'd be afraid to get a talking to from Winston Churchill in a way you might not from... Right, some of our contemporary politicians. 
<laughs> you know? And so it's about it's about becoming a monster to hunt monsters, but you but you're integrated enough that you hold the shadow at bay, except when you're using it to help people who aren't as empowered. And when you write books like uh, the Orphan X books, which are thrilling to read, are they? How much responsibility do you feel that you're not? You're probably not consciously writing politically, but to make sure that the book doesn't maybe contradict your own values, that um, that uh, things like diversity are important or, or, or not. I mean, do, do you do you sometimes think actually I'd need more female characters in this book, or I should make one of the characters black? No, it just happens. I mean, they, they wind up black. They wind up female characters. I mean, it's a reflection of my world and my community, which is unbelievably diverse. And by which I mean truly diverse, not merely, you know, multicultural, liberal diverse. Diversity of ideas. Oh, unbelievably so. Yeah. And, you know, soldiers. I peep, You know, one of my best friends. This was one of the things that is, is a story I tell. I have a, I have a friend who passed away. He's a great guy who... One of the characters in the Orphan X books is based on him, and he's an armor and a sniper. He was an early UDT diver, like kind of plank holder for SEAL Team Six, though he wasn't on. C- but he was like he was the go. He's the go-to guy for a lot of stuff. And it was, he was the Tommy. Yeah, character. yeah. His name was Billy Stojak. My character's Tommy Stojak. I mean, but if you saw him, he's right out of Central Casting. He had like. You know, Tommy Lee Jones eyes with like his bags on his eyes had bags beneath the eyes, and <laughs> you know, just like a biker handlebar mustache, and and Trump had just been elected, and uh, he he wanted me to go out and see his. He has this ranch house, right, to just show off. We'd go shoot any weapon in the desert. I mean, he lived outside of Vegas. I got on Benelli combat shotguns. I mean, I get on all the guns Evan smokes. I've you know, blown up cars on demolition ranges. I do mixed martial arts fighting. I try and get out and do all this stuff. But he wanted me to see his ranch. And just as we pull up at the ranch, there's a giant, like a mini tank in front with a, with a Trump pent sign hanging from it. And at that moment, my wife texted me and said, we're on the women's march in LA. And look, <laughs> we just came upon Miley Cyrus. And so there's a picture of her and my daughter with Miley Cyrus dings in my phone. And Billy goes, what's that? And I was like, Oh, nothing. <laughs> but I showed it to him and we had a great laugh about it. You know, it's like, so here, here, here are the two sides of the, but you know, it's, it's really helpful. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know any mindset that says anyone who you disagree with, don't talk to and denigrate and push away from you. Like, how could that possibly be beneficial? So, I mean, we had a ride. I was like, tell me about this Muslim ban because it makes zero sense to me. Like, we need translators. We need allies. Like, just talk to me. Where's your head on it? And not you're wrong and here's all my arguments. But, I mean, the notion of, like, have no friends who don't hold opposing views. It's like, oh, that should make you a highly effective figure in the world. (laughs) That just doesn't make any sense. Oh, so you wouldn't have any friends left. Because in the end, the pursuit of purity would mean that. No one can fully agree with anyone. Well, because... it's also so boring. Like, it's so yes. interesting. And I think part of this is, look, when I was, the research I do, I've interviewed and watched tapes of serial killers, right? I just did an adaptation of the book Black Flags that won the Pulitzer about the rise of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. And I was deep into his world. It's like, you're going to tell me I can't sit at a table and have a conversation with someone who voted for Trump and try and figure out how they think? But I'm writing from, I wrote inside the perspective of Zarqawi. Zarqawi was so bad. He was ISIS in Iraq that bin Laden apologized for him. And once a week when I was writing, I would watch the video where he beheaded Nick Berg personally. 
like just to not forget oh, who right. I was writing about. And it was horrifying. Like it's th- that's one of those like full body sweat because I'm writing f- completely from his perspective. And he was brilliant. But it was like, this is who we're dealing with. Um, you know, you got to know you got you got to know and understand that. And here we are saying, like, if somebody has a different Democratic presidential candidate, they can't be contended with. It's like, are you insane? Just on that, I've kept you for for, for far longer than um, than I should have done. Could you vote for Bernie Sanders against Donald Trump, or would that be too far for you? I would. And is that just because Trump is the ultimate thing that has to be defeated? Would it, would it, would it, would a different Republican candidate perhaps not inspire that answer? I might. V- yeah, I mean, right now I feel like it's all hands on deck. I think there's an erosion of the democratic institutions in a way that I find troubling. And I understand that a lot of Republicans see an equally dystopic future, right, at the hands of uh, Bernie Sanders or perhaps Elizabeth Warren. I don't share, I can understand that all the way. I don't share the extent to which they weight that. I don't think it's as dangerous as what's happening right now with the Justice Department and what's happening with turning down bills on election security. so yes, I would I would vote for Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump. And do you think you could ever vote Republican? Yeah, yeah. I never I haven't, but if it was, you know, if we had a candidate who I felt misaligned from and there was a ticket like Mitt Romney and Evan McMullen, I would certainly consider voting Republican. Craig, and I also help some Republicans. You okay. Know? Yeah, and I I mean it's the ultimate gain gain to me is to have two highly functional parties. So that we have to keep raising the bar on our ideas in a way that's actually intelligent. I'd love to have a really strong Republican Party that I trusted with leadership that was moral that I disagreed with to make sure that our policies actually make sense and to sand the edges off in debates and to cause everyone to figure out the best parts of us. Because the best cultures are liberals and conservatives working in concert to figure out the best path forward. And just because my proclivities lie to the left. It doesn't mean that I don't want us. I'd love to have strong people with strong believed values who disagree with me in the mix. And who are effective leaders. Right. And who might have solutions to things that I will miss because of the constitution of my personality, outlook, background, and education. Greg, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming in. Great to talk with you, too. We'll all be following you on social media throughout the the Democrat race and through the uh, election later this year. I mean, if you were to predict, do you think Trump gets reelected? Okay, so right now, I would say yes. But with that said, I feel like anything can happen at any moment. Like you yeah. think about Comey re- reopening the case about Hillary's emails. I think that was was the final thing that did it. Obviously, there's a list of things you can't lay, lay the blame solely on his feet in any extent. But I feel like it's so it's so insane that a month from now we might have an unrecognizable political landscape. And so right now, I don't think it looks good. I think this week is the worst week that the, or last week that the Democrats have had in a long time. Um, I'm not feeling sanguine about where everything is right now. But I also I feel like we can't predict based on past situations at all because every I think the playbook's been thrown out. We're in charter territory. Uh, Greg, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Good to talk with you.
Well, there you go. That's Greg Hurwitz. I mean, what a what a guy. What a phenomenal person to talk to. And it is. I have to keep reminding myself to always look to broaden the field of guests, um, not just in terms of ideology, but just in terms of. Politics is so much more than just party politics. It's so much more than just the day-to-day trench warfare. Um, So it was just a a wonderful, inspirational reminder that ways of talking about politics in different ways are out there and readily accessible. Um, So I've put a link uh, to Greg's uh, Twitter. You can follow him uh, through the show notes. And if you want to buy his uh, his latest book, Into the Fire. Um, And hopefully we will will hear from Greg again. He's someone who... I mean, the potential for him to influence uh, the future of politics is huge. And just a reminder about how to talk to people. And so many of the things he said... I really recognised, and I'm sure so many of you as well will, about being able to almost be more generous to people in another party than you are to people on your own side was a real uh, was a real reminder, perhaps, for a lot of us. So uh, what a thrill that was. I'm on tour, and thank you to so many of you who've come to see me already. Um, Brexit, pursued by a bear, continues around the UK. I'm in Crewe on the 20th of February and Leicester on the 21st. There's only a couple of tickets left for each of those shows, so go to the website mattford.com slash live for those. At Darlington uh, on the 5th of March, again, only a few tickets left. Hexham on the 6th of March, and then I know people get... Well, I don't know that you get annoyed. I imagine it's annoying to just hear me list a loads of towns and cities. But I think it's important that you know where I'm going so that you can buy a ticket. Bedford, Maidenhead, Leeds, York. Leeds, by the way, is almost sold out. Brighton has sold out. So some of these are very, you know, there aren't many tickets left for some of these. So that's why I'm telling you. Go to mattford.com slash live uh, for all those tickets um, to the fully updated, which will include... Um, I mean, all the nonsense that's happening at the moment. I feel almost, having spoken to Greg, that I've almost been to another universe and now talking about the Labour leadership contest seems um, seems so small. But, um, yes, I shouldn't talk the product down. Do buy tickets for the tour, mattford.com slash live. And please do leave a review on iTunes, share the podcast on social media, tell your friends and family, and I'll see you next week. Ta-ra! 